All right. Um, these last few weeks, we've been looking at. Excuse me. No, I'm good. Thank you. These last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the core values and vision of our church, so I'll just start off by reading our mission statement, um, since you probably haven't heard of it. I'm proud of it. Uh, the Austin CSI Mission Church exists to be an authentic church of Jesus Christ that demonstrates and declares his gospel through worship, evangelism, discipleship, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal. We seek to faithfully live out the traditions of the Church of South India in the context of Austin, Texas. So the basic idea here is that we want to be a church that roots everything we do out of love for the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God, out of love, is rescuing this entire creation from the curse of sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is Lord of the cosmos. The gospel, like if you look at the etymology of the word uh, in the Latin, it basically means good news that a new king has been enthroned, basically. So when we say believe the gospel, we're saying believe that Jesus Christ, who was crucified, is, ha, has been risen from the dead and is now ruling over all creation. That's what believe the gospel means. And when we believe in him, Jesus Christ pours his spirit into us so that now we can be his agents, his ambassadors, his royal priests. And we basically walk the world announcing the pardon of God to everyone that we meet and everything that we do, and we flood the world with everything that we do with God's grace and forgiveness. That's the gospel. And so everything that we want to do as a church kind of flows from that, worship, evangelism, discipleship, all the rest that I said. So today we're going to be focusing on gospel-centered community. Um, I, think if we, I think if we look into our lives, we can all see that uh, we all have a desire and a need for community, but I think if we reflect on it, we can also see the dark side of community, probably like the ugly underbelly of community. I hope you see where I'm going with this. Um, I can use my life as an example. I grew up in the church, probably like you. Uh, I was baptized in the CSI church as a baby. I was born to Christian parents, raised in the church, and my life benefited from a very close Christian community. It was a very small CSI church, Jacob George Hutchin in Houston. But even though we were close and things were good, there was also a dark side to everything, I think. There were all kinds of rivalries within that kind of close community, factions that rise up uh, according to who is friends and who's with Hutchin and who's against Hutchin, all kinds of like crazy, stupid stuff that I think makes a lot of people from at least my age turn away from at least the Indian church, right? Because I think the Indian church, everyone knows that we have close community. But then we also know that it can quickly get toxic and insular and kind of claustrophobic and you just want to get out, you want to break away. But I can also see why we need community because actually after I went to, I came to UT and I was only involved with One Way for one year, but I like, I loved being a part of it, right? Uh, and then after I graduated from UT, I went to law school in Nashville and I was basically super, super alone and kind of depressed because I didn't feel like I had a place where I belonged, right? And I, I think a lot of people who leave UT for maybe that one year that they're trying to figure things out, a lot of times I had that too, they feel that. They feel that sense of, oh, I don't really belong anywhere. I don't really have a community, and so I feel kind of alone. And so that obviously shows us that we have a need and a desire for community. Uh, and when I came back to Houston, that's how I started getting involved with my church and getting involved with like 
One Foundation and trying to basically build true community. But what was, what was interesting about this, and the reason why I'm, I'm trying to get into this is that in trying to build community as like a 25 year old and now three years later I'm 28, I saw that um, a lot of the problems with my parents' generation in terms of church are not just their problems. It's problems with people our age too. The same kind of toxic patterns, the same desire to belong, but also the desire to like exclude other people, it all recreated itself. Even in like Christian community, even in church, even with people my age who had been you know, brought up in the church and said they believed in the gospel and all that stuff, I saw the dark side of community too, where people are bad-mouthing one another, trying to gain status within the community. And when I realized that, I realized that even in one way, which I had idealized in my mind for that one year that I was involved, I could recognize that some of those same patterns were there too, right? Like there's a, an in-group and an out-group. There's a group of people who like know what the rules are to be popular within that community. And then there's a group of people who kind of feel like they don't belong, right? And basically what, basically what I want to talk about is how real Christian community totally breaks out of that. It's something that is totally unique uh, in human society. Real Christian community is always about bringing in the other, right? The person who's marginalized, the person who's ignored, the person who's forgotten, uh, the person who other people don't really look at or praise. Real Christianity is not about, real Christian community is not about gaining status within the community so you get other people's respect. It's about realizing that in Christ, by grace, you already have the highest status in the universe, right? You already have the eternal love of the Father. So you have nothing to lose by sacrificing your own interests to love someone else, to bring in someone else, to lower yourself, to elevate someone else. And that's absolutely different from any other kind of human society in the history of the world. So today we're going to talk about that, and we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, and talk about the glory of Christian community, the mission of Christian community, and finally the foundation or the basis of Christian community. Uh, so glory, mission, basis of Christian community. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, and I'm just going to read that. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a spiritual priesthood, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the, among the Gentiles, so that though they may malign you as evildoers, 
they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So what's going on here? Um, first, let's talk about the glory of Christian community. This, this is actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2. I think you could preach like five or ten different sermons on literally almost every different verse. So I'm going to try and give you an overview, but I apologize if I'm trying to cram too many ideas in. Um, so the glory of Christian community. Look at verses 4 and 5, First uh, Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. Come to him a living stone, rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like le- living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So what's going on here? Peter here is saying something pretty eye-popping if you're able to get a grasp of it. Peter here is saying that we as a community are being knit together. We are being built together into a spiritual house. In some translations, a temple. And what is a temple? It's where God dwells. And as he, do, as he does this, he's making a direct allusion. He's making a direct connection with the theme of the presence of God in the Old Testament. So in Exodus chapter 40, the Israelites had been led out of Egypt, right? And they've been given the law of God from Mount Sinai, they covenant with God. They, they basically promise and vow to God. They swear on their lives that they will be God's people and he will be their God. And so in Exodus chapter 40, God instructs Moses on how to build this tabernacle. This tabernacle. And after Israel has covenanted to be his people, God's glory comes down on the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40 in smoke and fire. So we believe God is everywhere, right? But God has promised the Israelites in this tabernacle, this is going to be his special presence, his empowering presence. It's, it's a place of awe, but also a place of fear, right? Like someone touches the Ark of the Covenant accidentally and they fall dead because it's so holy. It, sin cannot be in that presence. It's God's special presence in that tabernacle. And what Peter is saying is that now as the church, as the community built on the living stone of Jesus Christ, we are that temple. God comes down in power into us. And the question is, do we really believe that? Uh, We all know the story in Acts chapter 1 where God sends the Holy Spirit as tongues of fire on the apostles, right? And we know that Jesus promised that even when two or three people are gathered in his name, he will be specially present, right? Jesus promises that. But do we actually believe that? Do we have a sense of glory when it's like a small group like this gathered uh, in the name of Jesus? Do we have a sense of that power? I I know it's hard for me, but even right now, there is that power. The power of the Spirit enlivening us and filling us and uniting us. God is here in a special way whenever even two or three gather in his name. So you may be thinking, well, I believe that as a Christian, Jesus is accepted into my heart. So what's the big deal with what you're saying? How's that any different? And I want to respond by saying, no, I am talking about something a little different. Yes, we are individually promised that Christ is in our hearts. He's going to be with us. But when we meet as a Christian community, just like the tabernacle where the Israelites were able to experience the awesome presence of God, the fiery presence of God, uh, the healing presence of God, when we meet in community and we sing together, we sing these present worship songs or those hymns, we hear scripture read together, we hear the word preached together, we pray together, God is present in a unique way, in a powerful way that we can't access on our own individually. That's the implication of what Peter's saying here. We are the new temple as a community. 
That's something different from us being the temple individually. As a community, there is a power of God that is accessed that we cannot access on our own. So just one other point on this. There was this great Welsh preacher uh, in the middle of the 20th century named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Just when people started to record messages, right? Record sermons, sell tapes, or access tapes back then. Now it's podcasts. And he was a big influence on Tim Keller, on Tim Keller, who I got the story from. And Lloyd-Jones resisted recording his messages for the longest time. Ultimately, he did allow recording, but with a lot of reservations. Why? He was worried that his messages would start to be seen as a product, which would undermine the Christian community. And so people would never access the fullness of God's presence. Right now, you're in this room with me, right? And you see me, and I see you. And so as I'm speaking, I'm actually tailoring my message to you. Even if, you know, this is being recorded and people can hear it in the future, but you are actually participating in this message with me. You're not just consuming it. You're participating. You're helping make it with me. And Christian community is not a product to be consumed. It's a participation in the life of God. That's what's so awesome about it. That's what's so glorious about it. Today, it's so easy for our spirituality to just be listening to a podcast or hearing a really great worship set, right? And we just consume it individually. None of that's wrong, necessarily, but what I want to stress, I mean, I listen to podcasts all the time, but what I want to stress is that you're not accessing the full glory of God that way, the way you could be in community, because in community, you're not just consuming, you're participating in the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit is alive in you, and you are being joined in the worship of the Son of the Father. It's a very beautiful and mysterious picture. And so it's by being dedicated to a specific community, not just being one in a crowd that you don't really have any relationship with. That's what I'm trying to argue. It's by being dedicated to a specific community in the worship of the triune God that your hearts will be knit together as a temple and the fire will start to come down. You will access a power that uh, is otherwise inaccessible. So that's the glory of Christian community, but real Christian community, right? Uh, Not artificial, forced, fabricated community. Second, we want to talk about the mission of Christian community. So verse 9, if you go down to verse 9, it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we were talking about the glory of Christian community, and it is glorious. In Christian community, we participate in the glory of God. But this is kind of... I really want to highlight this because I think this gets distorted, especially in American evangelical churches sometimes. God's glory is not selfish. If you really understand God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he doesn't need us to praise him, to make him feel good. He's already perfect within himself from eternity. He's already perfect in love. He's already perfect in praise. He's already perfect in glory. So when he invites us into his life to praise him, it's actually an act of generosity. It's not an act of need from him. It's an act of generosity to us. It's a pure act of love because he's complete within himself and he wants to share that perfection with us. He wants to give that perfection to us. And in the same way, the glory we experience in Christian community is not just for our own consumption. Uh, It's not just for us to sit back and consume grace and be like, 
oh, I love how we feel when we're in our little community. This, this is actually what goes wrong, I think, with a lot of maybe Indian churches, too. We get too insular. We get too wrapped up in our own small little cultural activities. And we have a lot of fun hanging out and stuff. But it's never, it's never outward-oriented. It's never bringing in other people. It's never bringing life to other people outside. We're given grace to display God's grace to the world. So again, this is about participation, not consumption. Christian community displays God's character and holiness to the rest of the world. And not only that, Christian community sacrifices its own self-interest to love the world. Because in doing that, we show the world what God is like. So think about this. In the same way that God sacrificed, he has to sacrifice the life of his only son in order to allow us to share the glory of Christian community, the glory of participating in his life. That means that we, when we show God's glory to other people, it's not going to be easy. Sometimes that means that we have to enter into suffering. Sometimes people are really crappy. You know what I mean? Sometimes people take advantage of you. Sometimes people, like, you give money to that homeless person and then the next day you're passing him again. This happened to me recently. The next day you're passing him again and he's yelling at you. You know, he's cussing at you. People are ungrateful. But does that mean that we stop showing love? How does that show, display God's grace to the world if we stop showing grace when we start to feel suffering? So we have to, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to enter into the mission of God's ministry. That's what it means to be Christian community. That means to be a community that is not only glorying in itself and displaying God's glory to the world, but also on mission together. So when Peter says we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that's a callback actually to two ideas. He's saying we're chosen, we're a royal priesthood. First is the idea that it's actually developed a lot in the Old Testament, but it's this idea that Adam was God's chosen representative on earth. He's a royal priest. He's royal because he's called to rule over creation, right? He's given dominion over creation. And he's also a priest because he's an intercessor, right? What's an intercessor? An intercessor is someone who stands in the gap between creation and God to basically praise God. He, he reflects God's uh, creation's praises to God, and then he reflects God's glory back to creation. That's what actually the, the whole point of humanity was, if we understand the story of Adam and Eve. N.T. Wright, this Anglican theologian, he says, he says it this way, and I really like it. Mankind was created to be a two-way mirror, reflecting God's light into creation and reflecting creation's praises back to God. That's the purpose of man. But we all know that Adam rebelled against God, right? And Adam's rebellion not only put Adam under slavery to sin, death, and the devil, it didn't just put Adam under slavery, it also put creation in slavery, right? Cursed is the ground because of you, right? Do you remember God saying that in Genesis 3? Because Adam's the intercessor and he's the royal priesthood and his intercession for, the, for creation is cut off, all of creation is cursed now. But that's why God creates the salvation project starting with Abraham to bring the world back to himself. He wants to create, he creates a nation of, uh, called Israel out of Abraham, right? And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, check out what he says to Israel. He says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. The same things that Peter says about us. So, so what's going on here? What, what, what I'm trying to get you to see is that Israel had a purpose. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to focus on the micro stories of the Bible, right? Like Adam and Eve. And then we put that to the side. K 
Cain and Abel, and we put that to the side. And then God calls Abraham, and then, you know, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, blah, 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 down to Samson and Delilah. And we, when we start to do that, we miss the macro story that's uniting all those smaller stories. See, the big theme that connects Genesis to Exodus to 1 Kings to Daniel to Micah and Malachi is that Israel is supposed to be God's solution for Adam's sin. Adam has cut off God's relationship with mankind and also with creation because mankind is supposed to be this royal priesthood, right? So what God is doing by calling Abraham is he's trying to create a people for himself that's going to be the royal priest that Adam was supposed to be. That's what God is trying to do with Israel. They're supposed to rule creation according to God's principles of love and justice, and they're supposed to sum up creation's praises to God. They're supposed to intercede for the sake of creation and the rest of humankind before God. So if you know the Old Testament, you know that Israel fails over and over and over again to be that royal priesthood. But God fulfills his promises anyway. And we're going to get more into that in a second. But what Peter is trying to say here when he says, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, is that what Israel failed to be, now we are. Our mission as Christian community is to rule creation with God's principles of love and justice and to sum up creation's praises, to sing those praises back to God. We're supposed to intercede. We're supposed to stand in the gap between creation and the rest of the world and God. And we actually do this in our worship service. We have a time, you know, we talked about this before. We, we have a time we carve out just for intercession where we're basically pleading to God for the life of the world. That's part of Christian mission. And near the end of the passage, Peter tells us how we're supposed to live out this mission of reconciliation as royal priests. Beloved, this is verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that, though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So what's Peter saying here in these last few verses? As royal priests, we're aliens and exiles, right? So what is an alien or an exile? Basically, it means a resident immigrant, right? When our, first parents came, when our parents first came over here, they were resident immigrants. Maybe they got citizenship later on. But they started off having a green card. They're resident immigrants. And what does a resident immigrant do? They are here, but they're not really here, right? Like, their culture is still from back home. They haven't fully assimilated. They haven't fully bought in to the culture of this country. And Peter is saying that's supposed to be our relationship to the world as royal priests. We live here, but our values are heavenly values. Our culture is a heavenly culture. It's Right here, we have a little colony of the kingdom of God in our community that the rest of the world gets to see. And we don't sacrifice that. We don't, um, you know, give that up. And notice verse 12. As we live out our culture, the pagans, the Gentiles, the people who are non-Christians, they're going to be both attracted and repelled by us at the same time. That's what verse 12 says. They may malign you. They may curse you as evildoers but they will see your honorable deeds and glorify God. So at the same time, they're going to be attracted to you and they're going to be repelled by you. So why is that? How did that work out? In the early church, a clear example of this was the way um, Christians reacted to infanticide. So I don't know if you know much about early Roman history, but basically 
even today this is true, but especially back then, boys were privileged, girls were not. So if you were a family and you had too many female babies, you gave birth, you found out it was a girl, what you would do is you would leave it on the hilltop, right, to die from the elements. Maybe an animal would get it, maybe it would just get cold and the baby would die. What Christians started to do is they would walk the hills looking for babies. And they would take the babies and they would take them home and raise them as their children. And this, to the Romans, they were like, are you crazy? What are you doing? Girls are worth nothing. But at the same time, they were attracted to it. So they were repelled by it, but at the same time, they were attracted to it. They were like, why are you doing this? Why are you taking care of these women? And what's really interesting when you look at the history is like 50 years, well, not 50, like 20, 30 years later, all the women in the village would be Christian. And so then when they got married, they would raise their kids as Christians. And within two generations, the entire village is Christian, right? It's crazy how God works that way. In our own day, this is the way Christians should be to modern American culture. We should both attract and repel people by the way we live. If we look just like everyone else, we may, uh, we may not offend anyone, but we, may, we won't display God's glory and grace to them either if we just act like everyone else. So in our day, I think the, the issue here is really like gays and transgender and you know, LGBTQ issues. It's an issue where Christians are so reticent, I think especially of our generation, because in prior generations people have been so hateful toward that community, we, we just don't want to talk about it really. And sometimes in our own head, we don't really know what to say. But I've been really affected by the work of this one Christian Anglican gay person named Wesley Hill, who has experienced same-sex attraction that he's prayed about so long and that which has not left him. And so he thinks he, it may never leave him and he may never be able to marry a woman. And so he has dedicated his life to celibacy. And see, that kind of dedication is something that would interest people but also repel them. They're like, oh, so you're just never gonna have sex, you're never gonna get married, you're gonna be alone. And we need to be the kind of community where people can make that choice to be celibate and not feel alone. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Christian community should not, Christian community should not be we all hit 30 and we all get married and we have our own kids and we isolate ourselves and every once in a while we come to church. That's not Christian community. Christian community means that the person who's a widow, the person who's celibate, the person who never gets married, the person who keeps screwing up in life, they're all part of us. They're all part of our lives and we support them and we enable people to be celibate. And if we are that kind of tight-knit community where people can make those kinds of People can live that way and not be alone, but still be loved. I think that's something that's going to both attract people on the outside and also repel them because they're like, oh, I, I don't know if I can go there. But at the same time, there's something that's very interesting about that. That's exactly what Peter is talking about in verse 12. So this all sounds uh, hopefully compelling, you know, the glory of Christian community, the mission of Christian community. But if you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I was talking about how I've spent the vast majority of my life in Christian community, and rarely do we have this sense of glory or of mission. Instead, we're always devolving into infighting or petty, stupid divisions, right? So, so what do we do about this? How can we live out this glorious mission in community? How can we have a sense of God's special glory upon us as we pursue his ministry of reconciliation in community? And I think the key to this is to notice verse 5 where Peter calls us a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, uh, and spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. 
What Peter is saying is that we are the temple, we are the priests, and we are the sacrifices to God. But notice at the end of verse 5 it says, through Jesus Christ. Because elsewhere in the New Testament, I'm sure you're familiar with this, Jesus is called what? Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true priest. Jesus is the true sacrifice pleasing to God. So the first thing we have to be clear about for our mission to be a royal priesthood is that we can't do so on our own power, right? We, we can't. Everything we do is laid on the foundation of the living stone, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true temple. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're joined to his life in our baptism to be stones built on top of his foundation. Jesus Christ is the true high priest who intercedes for us, but he's promised that if we intercede for anyone to him, he will hear us and intercede to the Father. So he's the true intercessor, and we intercede to him. I hope you see that picture. Jesus Christ is the true sacrifice, but if we trust in his sacrifice, we inherit all of the eternal pleasure of God, right? The eternal approval of God. So now it's no longer any risk to us to sacrifice to love other people because we already have inherited everything. What, if you really believe in the resurrection, what would you be afraid of? If you really believe in the resurrection, would you be as anxious about your future as you are right now? Because you have eternal, infinite stretches of time where you will become more and more beautiful, more and more glorious, more and more in love with God, and more and more pleasing to God. You have an eternity stretching for you. And if you really believe that, why would you worry about anything? You know? And so, so that's what Peter is saying at the beginning of uh, chapter 2. And he also says this in verses 6, uh, verses six through 8. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, a rock that makes them fall. So picking up on what I talked about earlier, Israel failed to be the new Adam, right? Who would put God's relationship with creation right again. But in every place, it's so interesting when you look at the, the Bible through this lens, you see that Jesus' story mirrors Israel's story in a lot of crucial points. In every place where Israel failed, Christ succeeds as the true Israelite. So where Israel's tempted in the wilderness, you know, they, they curse God because of the manna, they uh, complain to Moses that they have no water, they wish they could go back to, uh, to Egypt, they worship the golden calf, they fail over and over again in the wilderness when they're going to the promised land. Jesus Christ goes into the wilderness and he's tempted three times and each time he prevails over the devil whether it comes to bread, whether it comes to worshiping the true God, whatever it is. Where Israel was brought to the promised land, but it didn't complete the conquest, they fail in completing the conquest of the, of the Holy Land and driving out the pagans, Jesus Christ is brought into the promised land and he succeeds in driving out the demons, right? Throughout his ministry, he's always driving out the demons. He's conquering the land. Where Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and ate from the tree and so forfeited his life, Jesus obeys God in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he hangs from a tree and loses his life so that we would gain ours. Over and over again, you see where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus Christ prevails. So for us to be a Christian community, we have to totally base the very, our very identities on the power and worth and merit of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. We have to meditate on 
that truth and push it deep into our hearts to be a Christian community, to be the kind of Christian community that doesn't devolve into divisions or to chasing our own agendas or when we're like 30 or 40 trying to make sure that our kids play the piano in front of the rest of the church and stuff like that so that we avoid that. We have to meditate on this truth. What is at the center of our community? And here's how Peter puts it in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here is actually quoting the book of Hosea here uh, in chapter 1. I think you probably remember the story of Hosea, but God tells Hosea the prophet to marry the prostitute Gomer, and she's unfaithful to him, she sleeps around, and she bears children, but they're not Hosea's. And actually, Hosea names one of the kids. This is actually a really sad name to think like if you grow up this way. But the translation of the name is not mine, not my people. And eventually, Gomer runs away with her lover, but her lover sells her into slavery. And in chapter 3, God instructs Hosea to buy Gomer back, to bring her back into his house, not as a slave, but as a wife, to clean her and to love her and to raise her children as his own. Not mine becomes mine. Her people become Hosea's people for real. And what God is doing here is he's providing us in advance a picture of the gospel. We're all people who have turned away from God, and in our rebellion we've become enslaved to anxiety, to fear, to death. But Jesus Christ, out of love, goes into the slave market, and he buys us with his own precious blood. And he brings us back not as slaves, but as his beloved bride. And that's a beautiful mystery. And so what I'm trying to stress to you today is that a Christian community is a group of people who have pushed this truth so down into their hearts Uh, They're a people who have made this the ground on which they stand on. They have meditated on this truth so much that they realize that the relationship Christ has to them is the relationship that we have to the world. In the same way that Christ enters into the slave market and gives up of himself to buy us and to love us, we have to go into the slave market and give up of ourselves to show love to the world. That, and through us, God is acting. Through us, Christ is buying them. That's the picture of Christian community. We're imitating Christ and worshiping the Father through the power of the Spirit. It's totally Trinitarian. Uh, everything we have is a blessed gift, gift. And we're given these gifts not for our own consumption, but to participate in the life and love of God. And we do so by freely sharing these gifts with the world through our intercession, through our prayer, through our sacrifices, our giving of money, and through our evangelism. Let's pray that we can be this kind of Christian community, not caught up in our own petty agendas and jealousies, but displaying the excellencies of Christ to the world. Let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the opportunity and give us the love and give us the understanding and give us the wisdom to really be this kind of community, a community that uh, is that displays the glory of who you are to the rest of the world, that experiences that glory, that accesses that glory, that is not just a group of individualistic consumers coming together to consume together, but is really being knit with hearts, having hearts knit one to the other so that we can be a temple where you truly dwell. Help us, uh, help our hearts to come afire with love for your mission of reconciliation with the rest of the world 
and help us to imitate Christ, to have such an understanding of the grace that was given to us that we can be gracious to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.